Hello and welcome to Chaplain's Word of the Day. I'm Chaplain Otis Corbett and I invite you to come along with me as we explore God's Word so that we can be inspired, challenged, and comforted together. Hello, I'm Otis Corbett. And today I want to share a word about marching orders as I comment on Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10. This passage reads, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. When military units get their marching orders, their commanders will call together their staffs and they'll initiate a process called the Military Decision-Making Process, or MDMP for short. This is a very detailed, painstaking, frustrating, and often torturous process by which these staff officers will develop various courses of action for their commanders to choose from in order to accomplish the assigned mission. Now, the standard outcome of MDMP is the production of three separate courses of action, or COAs, which can be compared and evaluated, and ideally have one of those chosen as the COA for the unit to follow. Now, what about an individual? What happens when instead of getting marching orders from an army general, a person gets marching orders from God? I think that, often, the same kind of processes can take place, albeit much more informally. If a person is feeling led by God to do something, then that person may weigh various options before making a commitment. And in fact, I think we can see in the Bible three good examples of different options we might consider when given our marching orders from God. The first course of action we might take is to renege and simply refuse our marching orders. The prime example of that in the Bible is Jonah. And as we'll see in Jonah 1 through 3, he really did renege. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah had the opportunity to go to the enemy of his people and his God and to preach the good news to them. Now, we know from other passages in his eponymous book that Jonah hated the Ninevites and would have literally loved to see them burn in hell. Now, what he didn't know, however, was that God was about to initiate a great revival among the Ninevites, one that would give his own people, the northern kingdom of Israel, 40 years, the time of an entire generation, to repent of their sins and return to God. We have no idea how the history of God's people would have changed had Jonah wholeheartedly embraced his marching orders. He didn't, however, and not only did he refuse them, he also ran away in the opposite direction. By doing so, Jonah showed that he was not only a rebel, but he was also a coward. 
I mean, if he was going to tell God no, he should have at least had the intestinal fortitude to stand his ground and take his punishment like a man. <laughs> but he didn't. In the end, God's will prevailed. He caused Jonah to make an amphibious landing so that he could preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And even though he didn't seem to put much effort into his sermon, a great revival broke out and the kingdom of Israel was afforded a generation of time to repent. That they didn't repent was not a reflection on God's grace, but it might have been a reflection on the kind of person Jonah was in his own heart. A, a second course of action open to us is found in a parable of Jesus. This parable is found in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, and it's known as the parable of the two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to, his, to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I say, tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Another reaction we can have when given marching orders from God is to have a bad attitude. And that's essentially what happened in this parable. The first son refused, but then obeyed. Now the end result was good. He obeyed. But the process he took to get there was, let's say, unfortunate. It would have been better for him had he saluted his dad and cheerfully obeyed him. But at least he obeyed in the end. The second son, on the other hand, also showed a bad attitude. He said, yes, sir. But then he proceeded to renege just like Jonah did. In fact, he lied to his father. Al Alcoholics Anonymous has a saying which applies to this young man. If what you say and what you do don't match, then what you say is a lie and what you do is the truth. We must remember that God is not interested in lip service. This son's reaction reminds me of a sign I saw once on a motor pool at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That sign said, the maximum effective range of an excuse is zero meters. We must not underestimate how much God prizes obedience. As I said recently, Samuel rebuked Saul's obedience by telling him that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And Jesus also told us, if you love me, keep my commandments. So in the end, the first son did what was right, but at what cost? What was the cost to his relationship with his father? What was the cost to his relationship with God? What was the cost in stress and frustration, in fear and shame and doubt? What was the cost to his father's reputation in the community that his own son would refuse his command? Acts 1.8 tells us that we will be witnesses for Christ, but what kind of witnesses we will be depends largely on how we respond to God's marching orders for our lives. Obviously, the first son's reaction was better than either his brother or Jonah's, <laughs> but it was still suboptimal. 
A third course of action can be found in our focal passage for today and also in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Abraham, who was known as Abram when God gave him his marching orders, shows us a radically different course of action to take when God calls. Abraham was not a young man when he was called, and he had a large household and many possessions. He also had deep roots in Haran with much family and many friends there. God, from a human perspective, audaciously told Abram to saddle up and move out to go to a place that he would reveal to him at a later time, which is a really remarkable requirement. I, I can never remember an instance in my military career when a unit was directed to move without an objective to take, uh, an assembly area to occupy, or a training area to utilize. It's just not done that way. Now, admittedly, the troop-leading procedures used by the Army and the Marine Corps do allow commanders to start their troops moving before a final plan of action has been locked down, but, but they will always specify a route to follow and a, an assembly area to occupy at least before starting a movement. Any commander who launches a unit on a march to nowhere would soon be looking for a new job. Just not done. God, however, works by a different set of leadership uh, procedures and principles. He told Abram, move out, and he expected Abram to trust him. And as both the Old Testament and the New Testament record, Abram did so. Romans 4.3 gives the final assessment of Abraham's koa. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So if given a choice of these three courses of action, what would a wise person choose? Well, I think it's obvious. The only koa without a flaw is the one taken by Abraham. As a former commander once said, it's always right to do the right thing, even when no one's looking. The right thing, of course, is to obey God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. Before I go, let me share my new book with you. Seminary taught me to be a pastor, but the Army taught me to be a leader. I would like to share how God melded those two skill sets in my new book, Decently and in Order. It's available now on Amazon in paperback and on Kindle. If you want to know more about effectively leading teams and events, check out Decently and in Order on Amazon.com. I believe you will find it eye-opening and helpful. That's Decently and in Order by Otis Corbett. Thanks for taking a look. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with another portion of God's Word that we can consider together. Every blessing, I'm Chaplain Otis Corbett.